Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now, driving at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. It's Manners Masterclass time, and joining me for this episode is Megan Shoot. Megan is a medium-fast in-swing bowler who hails from South Australia. She has represented Australia 142 times in all three formats and has taken 204 wickets for Australia in those appearances. Megan was part of the 2013 50-over World Cup win in India that I spoke about with Lisa Stalaker and has won two World T20 titles in 2018 and on that famous night in March 2020 at the MCG. Megan is also a fearless campaigner on social issues and publicly supported the same-sex marriage bill. Megan is now married to Jess and they are expecting their first child later this year. I hope you enjoy this interview with the delightful Megan Shute. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Australian women's team fast bowler, Megan Shoot. Megan, welcome to the podcast. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me and thanks for calling me a fast bowler. Now, just before we recorded, I think in the last 24 hours or a couple of days, you've announced that your wife, Jess, is pregnant. So I want to start off by congratulating you. You must be thrilled. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely stoked. And and honestly, keeping that secret for the last, you know, 17 weeks has been hell. So um, every opportunity I've said, you know, can I post this weekend, this weekend and finally got the permission to do it, which is great. And yeah, obviously, we're absolutely stoked. And to have a little girl on the way is, is honestly pretty special. What fantastic news. And I heard you talking on the Cricket Australia podcast, The Scoop, about your sort of IVF journey. And, you know, is, it's has it been difficult getting to this point? Um, it's been long is probably how I would word it. We've been extremely lucky with, um, for my egg extraction, we got a lot of eggs, which doesn't always happen. And, and then we happened to actually get it first go, um, in terms of implanting the egg in Jess. So we've been extremely lucky throughout. It's still just a really long process. So we probably started this really about a year and a half ago to, you know, start the, with the doctors and and to you know search for sperm donors and everything that's kind of involved in that process so it's extremely long and and obviously it can be even longer if we weren't successful the first go so as much as we have been lucky it's still been long but um obviously a bit of a longer process for us yeah well I'm glad you got there and I heard you um talking on the scoop that you sort of intimated that if your partner got pregnant you would sort of rethink your career 
<laughs> well, you said it. Um, <laughs> so, how, so where are you now? Now that you're at that moment, can you announce your retirement here or? Um... <laughs> nah, no chance. I um, yeah, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel to be honest in in terms of cricket, and I guess that's why I left that window open. For me, I don't think anything's going to change. It's obviously going to require um, a bit more support and communication with with the coaching staff in terms of, you know, if Jess can come on Aussie tours and, you know, I might need a little more time off here and there, um, especially when she's first born. But uh, for myself, I'm, I'm going to keep going as long as I can. I, I honestly don't know if one day I'll wake up and, and feel differently and say maybe today's the day I pull the pin. But, yeah, I, I guess for myself, I've always wanted to carry a child as well and, you know, if, if things go smoothly with Jess and I still want to do that, then that might throw a little spanner in the works. But honestly, with the parental policy that's now in place, um, I guess it's perfect incentive for people like me who have the, you know, chance to come back now um, after having a baby when that wasn't really an option. So, yeah, gosh knows where that's going to lead me. But um, for now, like my career will stay the same. But as I said, I've, I'm always leaving all doors open. Yep. Um, you mentioned that parental policy. So are you able to now, uh, you know, take children on tour much easier than you were able to in the past? Um, there's officially more support in terms of that. So really it's kind of like we haven't had the opportunity to take kids on tour. Like the last time we had a child on tour was Sarah Elliott and that was of oh, 2013 maybe. So it was, it was a long time ago and we haven't really had the opportunity to do that. And I do feel like CA and everyone involved, the ACA have been always supportive of that but again we've not really had anyone having kids so now that there's actually a policy in place it's officially supported now and I I don't feel like I would have had any issues anyways but now that it's there we know that there's funding and any assistance that we require is officially in writing now so um, it was never a deterrent to not have that policy but now that it's there it's it's even safer I guess. Oh that's great to have that extra support around the team unit You also mentioned on the Scoop podcast that there's a sort of stigma around female athletes talking about having children. And I sort of look at the current Australian women's cricket team and think that probably women in that team now thinking that if they're going to have kids, they're getting to that age. And it's never really discussed, obviously, because it's a personal matter. But why do you think there is a stigma around female athletes and childbirth you know it's almost seen like you have to keep it totally separate and you can't see a female athlete is also a mother oh, I think it's interesting just because there's stigma around female athletes in general um, so you add in the complexities of someone having a child and to be honest a lot of the coaching staff are male and everything that's involved in terms of you know sport you think of all the medical studies that's ever been done, it's always done on men. So we're even like talking about that stuff, you know, with AFLW and ACLs and all that stuff, all the research we have on that is on men. So it's not really linked to the female, you know, anatomy. And then you kind of chuck in that, you know, we're still in terms of women's sport as a whole, earning respect um, around the world and, and the game is evolving. I get that, but there's still, you know, a little stigma that kind of comes with being a female athlete. You know, you see, still see the, bloody netballers getting shamed all the time when they are amazing athletes so when you add in the complexities of you know childbirth I think people just get scared to talk about it and go well we're already allowing them to you know play sport and they want to go off and have a kid and that's kind of I guess like a little stigma that I think people can think I guess um so it's not really something like I think as a team we speak about it like privately amongst ourselves or even with our coaching staff like we are very very lucky to have the coaching staff that we do and they'd be extremely supportive of us and I don't know if that would be the same in every sport or every team but it's definitely being spoken about more and I think you know for us we don't feel like there's any negativity towards it I think we're very lucky to be in a super supportive sport that you know as I said has amazing staff amazing people and a great parental policy to back that up now so I think just more conversations we can have about it the better but across women's sport you see plenty of the netballers having kids and coming back so I don't see why cricketers can't do that too yeah absolutely oh well what a an interesting phase of your life you're about to embark on I can tell you (laughs) with playing international cricket you know kids need money so you know while you've got a well-paid job keep it as long as you can Megan (laughs) oh I will I just hope my body holds out Um, well, um, let's, 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 let's go back to when you started playing cricket for Australia, because, you know, you, you made your state debut, was it 2010 or 2009? 2009, I think, which is a long time ago. Yeah. So 12 years ago. And then 
you know, not long after you were picked for Australia, I think on a tour, was it to New Zealand? It was against New Zealand, yeah. Yeah, and um, what, what was that moment like when you first got picked for Australia? Because, yeah, I imagine it was a very different environment for Australian women's cricket back then. It was, um, it was kind of surreal with, like, to be honest, like when growing up, I didn't even know there was an Australian women's cricket team. And it wasn't until I made the state team that I found out there was a level above me. Like there was an Aussie women's team that I didn't even know about because obviously there was nothing on TV back then. Um, so, yeah, I'd only not long really discovered them when I got picked. So I was a bit kind of in awe of I had no idea of who was in that team. I didn't know these people, didn't know the environment, didn't know the setup. And so when I got called up, um, I was originally on standby, I got called in for injury, and I was told when I first got picked, like, yeah, you're just going to be running drinks for the next week. We've got a little niggle around the team. I was like, no worries. And I didn't even know how to run drinks. I'd never done it in my life. So I already looked like a fool on the sidelines, not knowing to walk around, you know, the boundary line with a drink Mm -hmm. bottle. And then the night after that, uh, I got a knock on the door and they're like, yep, we've had an injury. You're coming in to play tomorrow. And I was, I don't know, it just happened really, really quickly. And so I didn't even have time to panic because I'm like, oh crap, well, I'm here now. I've gone from state cricket to Aussie cricket pretty quick. All right, well, let's just do it. So, and I guess obviously I had the advantage of no one knowing who I was, especially the international teams. They're not going to have any footage on me because back then I didn't really stream WNCL. So yeah, like that was a, it was a really quick transition and it's probably what made it so easy in a way of, I didn't have time to be nervous and the whole environment was new to me. The people, the cricket, the gym, like everything that came with it was, was really fresh. So it was kind of just like a, a new world. And how old were you when you played that game? Uh, I was 19. So I was, I was still freshly an idiot. That's for sure. Like I think of how I was when I was 19 compared to how I am now. It's, it's a 180 flip. So I was thrown in um, probably when I had a lot of growing up to do, which was probably a good thing to be honest, gave me a good kick up the butt. What was it like when you called your parents and said, I'm going to be playing for Australia tomorrow? <laughs> um, so if you ever meet my parents, you, this reaction will suit them better, but uh, they're just like, Oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> like that, that's my parents they're not the most like um emotional kind of people and my dad is, yeah, is the kind of person that um drives you by like giving you a, a different kind of kick like my dad all the time be like just quick cricket and he knows that I'm going to defy him and continue cricket so that's kind of like if I'd come home from a you know crappy day of cup cricket or whatever he'd be like oh I'll just quit and he knew that was going to push me so that was the way he encouraged me so when I told him you know, obviously about um, the call up and stuff. He's like, oh, that's good. You know? <laughs> and, right. and, and that's a real driving factor for me. Like that's just how I grew up. So, um, and then my mum is pretty similar. She's no clue what's really going on. So she'd be like, that's great, honey. And I could have told her anything and she'll have like a that's great, honey kind of reaction. So yeah, I guess it wasn't like what you see today when, you know, they record the young footballing boys calling their parents and they cry on the phone. That's that's definitely not my parents. <laughs> So 10 years later, you're still trying to like prove yourself to your parents? <laughs> like, hey, mum, I want another World Cup. <laughs> yeah, I still get the, oh, proud of you, but still kind of in that same um, tone. So my, my dad's still telling me to quit cricket. He tells me all the bloody time. Um, I don't think that's going to end. But again, um, <laughs> that's a driving factor for me. And, and I, yeah, I know he's proud. I don't need to hear it. Oh, that's fantastic. What about in the team? Were there any sort of senior players that – Sort of took you under their wing and helped you integrate into the team, you know, a young woman straight out of Adelaide suburbs and then, you know, into the Aussie team, any sort of senior players that you really gelled with? <laughs> Not like straight away. I'll, I'll be honest. It, it didn't feel like the most welcoming team when I first got in there. And I think because this is going to sound really harsh, but the coach at the time was um, Catherine Fitzpatrick, who amazing, you know, fast bowler, but a bit of a, harsh coach and I think everyone was a little bit on edge all the time um so when I came in I just felt a sense of tension in the team and I was like crap do I really kind of you know belong here I'm a bit of a free spirit um but eventually uh me and Sarah Coit became like best friends extremely quick and that's what's what's funny was it was her spot I was taking for that game that I debuted she had a quad strain I think it was and and I came in for her so not long after then Cordy and I gelled and that's kind of a friendship that's stayed really strong, to be honest. She's, she's one of my closest friends. So to have her as well at the strikers is, is really cool. And, um, yeah, I guess she would be the first person who, who took me under her wing. 
That's nice for you to have one of your good friends playing in your team. What about then you, you, you're out there in your first game for Australia. Do you remember how nervous you were before you bowled that first ball? I don't remember being nervous. Like I get more nervous now for a bloody club match, like going in the bat than I do for what was the first ball of that game. I, I think again, I, I didn't really feel like I belonged. Like I didn't think I was ready. Um, didn't think I deserved it, which is it, all probably true to be honest. I definitely wasn't ready to be at that level. I just had, I guess, an X factor of being an in-swinger and Renee Farrell was taking some time out of the game and <clears throat> that was what they needed. So um, I was kind of just thrown in and I honestly just thought it'd be a short stint. <laughs> I was like, yep, I'm here till Fez comes back. Um, I'm just some fresh kid who's never even done a gym session in her life. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly wasn't nervous because I was like, I don't, I have nothing to lose. Like, I don't think I really deserve this opportunity so I'll just play as well as I can and and hope for the best and to be honest my first game was very average I think I went for like 35 off my five overs or something and I was like well that's done (laughs) and then play the next game which was a little bit better I took a couple wickets so that was nice and then from there I got the call up for the World Cup in India like a month later and that was kind of just a whirlwind experience for me and it happened yeah very quickly. So I had Lisa Stalaker on a couple of episodes ago and she t- we talked about the, the win in the 2013 World Cup in India and you played a great part in that win. win. You were the leading wicket taker of the to- tournament, 15 wickets. And I imagine that tournament, uh, I guess, you know, boosted your confidence and was a, an important stepping stone in your development. Oh, absolutely. It, again, it was kind of just, it was, it was surreal, like, <clears throat> when I got there, he, um, Catherine had said, you know, you might not play a game. And I was like, that's cool. I, I'm just like, you know, stoked to be here. Like, uh, like my, the only place I'd ever been in my life outside of Australia was New Zealand, which pretty much is like Australia. So to then jump on a plane to India, um, a completely different country was, was really cool. And so I was just happy to be there. And then <laughs> when the first game came up and they're like, yep, you're playing and you're opening. And I was like, okay, cool. This is like, you know, transition pretty quickly. And then with each passing game, I kind of just built more confidence, I guess. And again, I don't think there was anyone in the world bowling in swing apart from me and Shrubby at the time. So a um, bit of an X factor there. And obviously to go on and win that final, like I I don't think I really realised at the time what was happening. Like I, I remember being like so happy and so excited but I look back now and I'm like, that was a bloody world cup. Like, and I'm not sure that resonated at the time. Like I'm just pretty competitive in, in most things that I do and was happy to win. And, but I guess because I didn't have like really strong friendships, it didn't feel as incredible as it does now. Like I think now that I know that, you know, I've earned my spot, I love my teammates so much and we're achieving stuff together. Like when we win now, <laughs> it's just, I don't know, there's a feeling in my heart that's a bit different than what it was in that world cup but that was i guess the start of my career and that's also really special yeah i I do think when you're young sometimes you don't appreciate some of the things you're doing and as you get a bit older you sort of gain more perspective and you know since that 2013 50 over world cup win you know you haven't played in a in another uh, world cup winning team that's won the 50 over world cup so i guess if you can do it again next year in uh, new zealand you'll you'll bring that extra perspective to it. Absolutely. And that, you know, as you go on in your career, you do reflect on things more and more. And that's what changes, I guess, is perspective as you learn and you you grow as a person. Um, You look back at that. And that's why, like, I think we're all so hungry for this next World Cup. Like, we obviously remember the last 50-ever World Cup really clearly. That was kind of like our our turning point, I guess, when we lost that semi. You know, we – we went back and we reflected on, you know, our values, our morals, our, how we want to play as a team and did a complete overhaul really. And ever since then, we've played a really good cricket consistently. So, yeah, this is a real motivator, I guess. Now, that in that 2013 World Cup final, I know at the end of it, Lisa Stalaker announced her retirement. And actually, because you've been playing for a long time, you know, you would have started when Australian women's cricket team players had to almost pay their own way to play it. And, you know, when you were playing, just starting, it was, you know, you weren't making any money. You know, how do you feel about the debt that the current generation of players owes the the players that have come before? I think that's exactly what motivates us to do well. Um, it is something that we do speak about regularly. Like the first contract I've signed for Australia was $5,000. So it's, it's obviously a, a big change to what it is now, but 
we we really know that and that's probably what is most um, respected in a way of we know what the people have done before us and we need to make sure that we keep that respect on the badge and that is something that we try to do all the time and we know that we're role models we know we have a role to play in encouraging the next generation as well as respecting the people that have been before us and it is something that we honestly speak about a lot it's not cliche it is it is truly in the back of our minds of making sure that we we do the right thing and I think since we have good coaching staff and good people and whoever comes into the team learns these values. But to be honest, it's kind of even like that at a state level. Like we've only had state contracts in for a little while. And whilst they are small, it's the same thing with even the state girls now, you know, the state girls, you know, six years ago weren't getting a penny. So it was, yeah, it kind of flows throughout women's sport as a whole of, Hey, this is where we are now. We've got a way to go, but let's respect what's already came and that we have a role to play in making sure that things are better for future generations as well. Yeah. And you know, you and your contemporaries like Elise Healy and Elise Perry and Meg Lanning have a link to the past, but I guess, you know, it's important to pass that on to the next generation that come through that are playing in the WBBL and have only maybe ever really seen Australian women's cricketers as professionals uh, to remind them that it wasn't that long ago that it, it wasn't this this way at all. Yep, for sure. And as I said, that is a conversation we, we do have. And I think too, we're lucky that, well, in the Aussie team and the state team, there's a mix of old and, and, and young. So we do still make those comments like, hey, remember back in the day, and even if it's bringing up, you know, our disgusting uniforms that used to be men's and men's size and oversized. So we were like playing and just looking like rookies and no wonder we didn't get the respect that, you know, we deserve. So because there always is a mix and obviously one day that will fade out of everyone in that team will have been in a professional era. Um, I feel like we're installing that enough to make sure that they know that they're in a bit more of a privileged position than, you know, they would have been six years ago. But as I said, still respecting that there is work to be done to improve still. Yeah, I love the WBBL and I'm thrilled that it's now a standalone tournament. But, you know, I think that's been so vital in lifting the profile of Australian women's cricketers. It, you know, builds on the success of the national team, but having a dynamic competition once a year, it just does wonders for the for the female game. Oh, for sure. And I think actually like the Australian women's team, builds off of the big bash like you you think about it we we've unearthed so many good young kids that have had these opportunities that don't really get that in WNCL with there obviously only being one team per state and then so that's our like core is WNCL and then we really get to express our young kids that get an opportunity on a world stage against world-class players that come over to play a world-class competition like we know how good the WBBL is and we know that this is the one competition that every female cricketer wants to play in. So uh, I love, I didn't think we'd get to stand alone in my time. Um, I'm so glad that we are because I think we've showcased it with really good cricket and, you know, to be able to do that in a big bash hub last year was extremely, you know, it was different. Um, and obviously this year is going to be, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, a bit more free flowing, but the big bash is just such a good competition. And for me, you get to also play against world-class players that, I would do on a regular basis being in the Aussie team, but my state teammates that, you know, have only been in the comp two years are now playing against maybe a a Sophie Devine. Um, Like it's crazy the opportunity that they get from a younger stage and that only helps develop these young kids so that when they do get the call up to Australia, they're ready. Yeah, which of your Aussie teammates do you you like dismissing the most in the (laughs) women's big bash? Oh, it's got to be Alyssa Healy. <laughs> it's, it's Midge and Meg. They're my two, like, prized possessions. But at the same time, I know that they hate getting out to me. So I know that they're a little more cautious um, <laughs> than they have been in the past, which is so frustrating. I'm, I'm not, you know, your express pace where I'm going to get you out with every ball. It's like if you want to play me out, you can. Like it's kind of, it's, it, it balances that way, but then you got to obviously make it up the other end, which is now that, you know, for, you know, state stuff and we have Darcy Brown and Tyler McGraw up the other end, like good luck making it up against them. I don't think Elisa Healy knows how to hold back. No. Uh, and on and off the field. What I love. Yes. That is her as a person on and off the field. And that is why, yeah, she's, she's my favorite. I actually 
have been really lucky to interview quite a few of your teammates. And I have to say, um, you know, it's always such a pleasure talking to, you know, your teammates. It's just such a, such a great sort of vibe around the Australian women's cricket team and everyone is giving and, you know, you're very open and happy to talk about anything. It's very refreshing. You know, you come up against athletes that are schooled in how not to say anything all the time. Yeah. I just love it. It's um, I, I love that you mentioned that. I think that we do owe a fair bit to our current media manager, Lucy. She's really cool in making sure that our personalities are portrayed. Like, that was my one thing that I never wanted to be was robotic and that's what most of the girls are not and that's what I love is like it's encouraged to, you know, obviously say what we want to an extent um, and pretty much I've been given the go-ahead as long as I'm not slamming our sponsors or slamming, you know, CA, like I can kind of say whatever I like, which I'm probably going to do anyways. But, yeah, the team is – we're an honest team. Like I think that's probably what – makes us get along so well as we can just say the things that we want to say and we've been around each other so long we we know when we're getting on someone else's nerves so we know when to pull back and I don't know I think you obviously we have the privilege of being together for a long time and having a lot of success but I think that success can come from the kind of people that are in the team and the open honesty and and just the genuinely good fun that we have so yeah like for people like me and Midge (laughs) these opportunities to kind of um, talk about all this stuff is really cool because we're just going to say whatever we're feeling. Mm. I think it, it brings in fans. If you're open and show a little bit of vulnerability and, and, and t- say how you're feeling, then you do bring fans closer to the team. I, at the end of the day, like we're human. And, and that's what like I think people forget about athletes in general, especially people who have had a lot of success. Like I think they figure that these things just come on a platter and, this is how you should act. This is how you should feel. But really, if you just, yeah, show that you, you're a human being, like I grew up a little rat bag from, you know, the Southern suburbs, stealing stuff, doing whatever I wanted. And this is how I've made it from hard work, dedication, and, and generally loving what I'm doing around good people. So it just shows that this is what can be achieved by your everyday human. And we feel like everyday people. It's just, we happen to be playing at a high level sport. It's good for Elise Perry to finally get a bit of a break. I mean, she was the face of not just women's cricket, but almost women's sport in this country for so long, being a dual international. I feel like finally in the last few years, and this is no slide on Elise, she's fantastic, but, you know, more characters have emerged and it's just a lot broader. Yeah, I think that comes twofold in the sense that I feel for Pez, who's been doing media since she was bloody 16 years old, like, if I was getting interviewed when I was 16, I would have ended my career then and there with probably what I would say. So um, <laughs> kudos to her for, for getting through 16 years of that. But um, again, like I think that's a lot of credit to our current media stuff is yeah, Lucy and, and a couple of people before I came in and we had some really honest conversations. And I remember her asking like, how do we think we can build our brand better? And I was like, well, <laughs> there's a lot of people in this team that have really cool personalities and Pez will always be picked because she's an amazing athlete, a great person, bloody smart, like the kind of all round package. And I was like, but in terms of personality, I'm like, you have people like at the time, like Elise Falani and that in this team, like, my God, she's a cracker. I'm like, the more you can get people like that, you're going to appeal to more and more kinds of people wanting to get into the sport. So, and kudos to Lucy who, who went, all right, well, let's start showcasing your personalities um, individually. And it's kind of just brought everyone into the spotlight rather than just who performs well. Cause it's always going to be Pez because she does perform well. She's so damn consistent and so damn good at what she does, that that's just kind of a given. So if we can highlight everyone else around her, I can show that we have a team full of personality and, you know, have our head switched on. Um, yeah, it's, it's only greater to us. A shout out to Lucy, who's provided many fantastic guests for this podcast. Uh, what about, you know, the surprising personality? Is there anyone, like we all know Elisa Healy and Sophie Molyneux and Elise Filani, anyone behind closed doors who's, you think, ready to burst out? <laughs> oh, Darcy Brown, mate. Um, she's a cracker. She's a... Uh... Yeah, she's going to act shy on these first couple of interviews. That's what she's going to do. She's new to it, but um, she's a firecracker. Um, just a young kid who, again, expresses herself however she wants. I think she's trying to learn the ropes a little bit in terms of media, and she will get taught that. But at the same time, she's 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 damn funny. She's just one of those people who, you know, I guess the younger generation, she TikToks, she does all that and comes in with all these jokes that I don't know anything about. But 
um, <laughs> she's got a great personality and obviously I'm a bit biased with her coming from SA, but um, yeah, she was, she was got a long time, hopefully ahead in the, in the green and gold. And you guys are going to see that personality. Fantastic. Are you on TikTok, Megan? I am not on TikTok. No, I, uh, no, nah, that's not my thing. <laughs> I feel like it could be. Um, no, I hate the camera. Funny enough. Um, <laughs> if the, I'll watch happily watch TikToks that whatever Darcy sends through the group, which is always something on Snapchat. Um, but yeah, I would never be on that. That's it. TikTok's loss. Uh, now, um, <laughs> sort of just picking up in 2015, your ashes tour success. So you've been to England, what in the 2015 and 2019 ashes tour. I can imagine England's a great place to tour. It is. Oh, I love it. It's literally the same, same, but different um, to Australia. And that's what makes it cool. And I actually spent um, four months there playing county cricket uh, for Knots. And that was just a, a really cool experience in the way they play the game just differently in their environment. Like it's just, it's very English, um, but it's, it's a great place to tour. And luckily both of those tours um, have been really successful and um, England somewhere I like to play it's you know the ball swings the decks probably suit me a little bit more you get such a variety of, of fields like the odd shapes and, and, and backgrounds that you get um, yeah it's really cool and 2015 Ashes tour was a big success 2019 uh, it still came back with the Ashes so another good tour you know you did really well in the test in 2015 taking four for 26 in the first innings but did you get to play much red ball cricket no, no. We um, so obviously we don't get to play much red ball in general. But I didn't grow up playing really any red ball cricket either. So, um, it's it's still fresh to me. The ball itself is still fresh. Um, it's something that I guess I'm still learning for sure. I mean, it's really just an extension of my fifty over game in a way. But um, again, you need you need the right environment to do it. Um, you need the right pitch, I think, and when we're used to playing on venues that don't always host test cricket, it can be a little interesting, but um, to obviously be involved in those tests like baggy greens for the women's team do not come around very easily or very frequently. So um, obviously having a two test um, year this year is like something I, I didn't see in my time happening. And and that is just so damn exciting because hopefully we can showcase some cricketers in, in our own country um, for the longer format we've been pushing to play for a long time. You're very exciting. A day and night test at the Wacker and taking on the Poms and the Ashes test. It's going to be thrilling. Where, where do you sit on these, the debate around more test cricket for the women's team? Do you think there should be more? But I've also spoken to coaches that say it's hard because, you know, as a fast bowler, you've got to increase your loads. You've got to prepare for it. So it's not like you can just turn it on and say, okay, let's play a test match next week. You, you know, it's a tough one to juggle. Oh, for sure. And that is, I guess, the load stuff is what we have really good S&Cs and, and all them for. Um, they figure that out. But in a way, like the longer format is the epitome of cricket. That's what we would love to play. But we are also extremely, you know, aware that that takes time um, to build and, and learn how to play the game. As I said, I've never played longer format until I, you know, gotten to Australian colours. So for me, I can watch it all I want but playing it is a different story. So it's actually just learning the concepts, the strategies, the field sets. Like that was probably what I found the hardest was, okay, what field, what am I willing to give away for this? Like it, it's just learning the strategies behind it um, that takes time. But I, I do think we should be playing more longer format, but I do understand that our World Cups and T20s, T20 World Cups, like they're, they're what we're fighting for. And that is the format we play more of. It's what we're more suited to. Um, so yeah, it, it's a double-edged sword in terms of you, you want to develop that longer formatted, formatted game, but at the same time, we still need to develop a lot of the smaller countries to even get up to the 50 over and T20 before we can even think about the heights of, of test cricket. So, you know, we've got those nations that are borderline, um, still coming along and, you know, your Sri Lanka and, and stuff like, like countries like that, we need to keep building and make sure that. Yes, we want to keep a gap in terms of winning. We always want to win. You do not get sick of winning. But we need to be showing good quality cricket um, in every series that we play. And I agree that it is there already. Like now we can showcase, you know, if Pakistan or Sri Lanka come over, we can can show good cricket. But it's still not at the level of 
us and you know England, um, New Zealand, India. So yeah, it's it's both, <laughs> and I don't know the answer to that question of what comes first. But I, uh, you ask anyone, and they're going to say they want to play more longer format cricket. And we spoke before about the 2017 50 over World Cup semi final loss to India, and it was a pivotal moment for the team and it's propelled the team onto two 20 over World Cup wins. But you know, at the end of that 2017 World Cup, I know there was a lot of discussions in the team about playing a different brand of cricket. Where were you in those discussions, and what was your input into what you, what you think the team needed to do? Yeah, uh, I was stuck in my own head to be honest I just kept thinking back to my own performance and that I realized that I didn't have a plan b a plan c a plan d everything that I should have had probably at that level which had worked previously I didn't really have and I replayed that game and my overs so many times in in my head and still do sometimes to be honest um of thinking like crap if only I had that slower ball back then or if only I had this field set and this plan back then like we could have made it differently but that kind of was the same for all of us we'd been so successful so expected to win and we knew the English team who were our main I guess competition inside and out so when we came to a team against India who just turned it on that day yeah not having a plan C and all that in place was what threw us under the bus so for me as a bowler I went away learned a new slow ball and just learned new plans. And <clears throat> they're obviously my plans A, B now, but now I do have a C, a D and E <laughs> ready in place for a day that that might come again, because you just, you never know if that team or an individual player is, is going to try and take the game away from you. And so, yeah, that for me sitting in that change room, um, I was just reflecting on each ball and, and what I could have bowled. And had I been more brave at the time, would there have been a different outcome yeah, I stewed on that for a while, but that's what we all were doing. Um, batters included um, with their own game plans. And we all just figured like, hey, we're all feeling emotional. Let's all just discuss um, how we're going to get better. Like we all feel sad. We all feel disappointed. So how are we going to move on from this? And, and that was what came of it really. And yeah, it was an open and honest conversation that that worked for us. Yeah, it must have been crushing to miss a World Cup final at Lords. Yeah, and to watch the final and see – you know, a full house and everything that they'd spoken about. It was still special. It was obviously extremely disappointing for us not to be there, but to see a packed house at Lords and have England win it as much as I hate the Poms. Have England win it in the fashion that they did um, in front of a home crowd. I don't know. It was it was really touching still. And as much as it was a, a kick in the heart, you know, they, they achieved what they wanted to and then that kind of set the standard of what we wanted to do with a home World Cup here in Australia and we then achieved it as well, which is bloody cool. Yeah, two great moments for women's cricket. Well, then after that disappointment, it spurred two fantastic 20-over World Cup wins in 2018 and then 2020 at home, of course, that famous night in March 2020 before the world virtually ended. <laughs> I really felt that there was a lot of unfair pressure put on the team going into that tournament, all the campaigns around, you know, making the final and then winning it. How much was that felt within the team? Um, I don't think it was unfair pressure. I think it was fair in the sense of we kind of, we knew that that was going to be the case for the home world cup because we knew that that was on the people like West Indies in their own home world cup. And that kind of comes with the territory of it being at home. It was more so, I guess the record and just speaking mm. about that. And in all honesty, I, di- I didn't think we were going to achieve it. I didn't think we were going to get what we wanted only because we had not even got close in all the years throughout Australian women's cricket in this country. We'd not even got close to those numbers. So I was like, how are we going to change this in one tournament? So they proved me wrong and I'm very glad about it. But it, it was definitely something that we discussed, but we just accepted that it was a part of it. And we we made a conscious effort to dismiss it in the media to go, no, nah, no pressure. It's just another game of cricket. We we're, were lying, of course. <laughs> but we knew that that pressure was there, but we knew that that was a part of it. So for us, it wasn't more so the crap, we're not going to make the final and ruin it. It's the crap, we might <laughs> lose a game of cricket. Like just in general, like we are, I think, pretty hard on ourselves and how we perform. So just losing in general wasn't isn't really an option, yet alone in these circumstances. So I think for us, like the, the relief that came for just making that final, like that semi was incredible. Like to get a game on in the rain and then have it 
bucket down the second that that game ended. I don't know. It was just absolute fate. And it was a crazy game of cricket to be a part of. So then once we got to the final, we'd already had a breath of fresh air. We're like, oh, we've done what we wanted to. Like whether we win or lose today, there's still this many people here. And that was the way we we kind of played with freedom. Like I remember just having discussion of like, who cares whether we win or lose? Like we're a part of history today. Like we've done what we set to achieve. So and then Mids went out and Moons went out and played the way they did. And that was, they just played the way that we felt, which was free. All the pressure was off our shoulders. And now all we need to do was play one more game of cricket. Like that was honestly the feeling that I felt and that I think most of the team felt and that came across in, in our cricket. I know there was a meeting during the tournament where you all sort of sat around and, you know, put your fears out on the table metaphorically. And that was kind of began the turnaround after, you know, tough start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, for us, as I said, we can get better for sure in terms of our open and honest communication. I think we're still honest, but we're probably not as honest as we could be. Um, I think that's the case in every sport everywhere. Well, just human beings in general. But we did, like we said, we're like, we're not playing the brand of cricket that we said we wanted to play and that we've been playing for the last 12 months. Why? And so we just kind of went through in individual groups as bowlers and batters. Um, yeah, as I said, laid our feelings on the table, um, but really just came up with a strategy of like, we didn't speak about making the final. Like that wasn't really the, the conversation. It was more, why are we not playing the way we want to be playing? So I don't actually remember how we, what we came up with to, to you know, give us a good kick up the butt. I think it was just the realisation of having those talks was kind of nice that everyone was feeling the same way. Like it wasn't only me that was anxious and didn't feel like they were playing at a hundred percent capacity. So once we kind of put all that on the table and you're like, Oh, we're all feeling the same way. Well, let's all just take it a step up. And we changed our training a bit um, and just had more conversations, I guess. And it, it makes you double down a bit more on your homework for, you know, your teams and stuff like that. So a lot of the obviously top end teams, we play a lot and we know inside out, but it's actually, you know, <laughs> we almost got bummed out by Sri Lanka. Like that shouldn't happen in all honesty, as as rude as that may sound, that shouldn't happen. So we're like, well, we can't make, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So when we came up in our next game, we we were ready for that. Yeah. And what an end to the tournament it was lifting the title in front of pretty much a packed house. I know Lisa Stalaker was crying that night because it was so emotional for her seeing the, the journey that women's cricket had taken. And, I imagine, you know, you were buzzed and having a lot of fun and it would have been a great night, but how have you reflected on just that night? <laughs> I've had a lot of opportunity to reflect because there's been a lot of these mm. interviews, which is great. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's cool. To Can just you give realize. me a fresh angle? <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure there is a fresh angle because every time I just say the same thing, because it's the truth, but like yeah. just realizing that you're a part of something that was so unique and, was something that, again, I just did not think could happen in my time. I was sceptical. I was like, no chance of me getting this many people. And to be proven wrong, I've never been more glad. Like, I, It was just, it was one of those days that you just do not forget and you know you've etched in history. Like we've won, Australia has won so many World Cups before, but this is like the cherry on top. Like this is, you know, the pinnacle and... This is what people I think are going to remember in the history books for the next 20 years is, hey, 2020, in front of this crowd, they set out with a goal. Like when Nick Hockley first kind of presented that to me, I remember randomly we'd come from some media thing and I didn't even know really Nick at the time. So I was like, probably not as well-mannered as I should have been. And we got the cab. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We, um, We got in the cab. We were heading to the airport together. And he was like, oh, what do you think about, you know, the goal? for you know filling the g and i was like oh i was like it's all well and good to have that goal but are you going to advertise it i was like are you going to do the hard work behind the scenes to make us get there i'm like we've been winning for a long time now but we're still not getting those bums on seats so what's going to change for this and he's like you know we've got this this and this in plan and i was not i don't think rude but i was flat out and going well you better do it like if you if you say that that is your goal then that's how you're going to achieve it. Then you better do it. And, and then I really realized who Nick Cockley was and the conversation I just had with him. Um, and he became the interim CEO and all this stuff. And I was like, oh crap. Well, you know, I've really done it in myself this time, but he's a, yeah, his view was so large that I didn't even see it at the time. And I love that. Like we needed someone like that to come into CA 
rattle things up and go, nah, this is what's achievable if you put in the work. So um, all credit to him. And, yeah, I saw the announcement yesterday with him, you know, obviously being permanent now and that is bloody awesome because he's a great guy with great vision and just genuinely seems like a good person. And not often do you get that with CEO, I well, in my personal view. Um, so, to, yeah, to have him in there is is really cool. Yeah, it's a great appointment and I'm not just saying that because sometimes I work for CA, but the fact that, you know, I saw him down at the boundary cajoling the men's Indian test team about the Gabba test. Um, you know, he was just outside the bubble talking to them about their concerns. You know, it would be so easy for a CEO to send someone else to do that for him. But Absolutely. He went there and got his hands dirty and basically thought, I'm going to do, I'm going to make this happen. And I, I think that's a sign of good leadership. You not often about being, you know, brash and blustering. Sometimes it's the way you quietly steer a ship that leads to success. Oh, for sure. And for me, like, that's just respect. Like that is him hearing firsthand, like he's not got, you know, a middleman to pass on a message. It might get confused somewhere. And then it creates no accountability in a way. If you go off oh, send this person, they don't get the right message and they give you the wrong message. Then the people who have given the feedback go, well, I actually passed this on. Why didn't you get it? And then, so there's so much room for error. So for him to come directly, I don't know. It, like that's just such respect in my eyes to to hear it firsthand and go, well, this is, you know, a conversation that we need to probably have face to face. And and you can also obviously read someone's emotions when you are talking to them. You know, you can say whatever you want on an email, but you might not get the right tone or, or get across your point. But you can see if you know someone's lying to you or something is more important than something else. So yeah, I think those conversations are really important. So yeah, kudos to Nick. Yeah. Speaking of strong, steady leaders, Meg Lanning comes across as a, a very, she, you know, she's quite reserved in the media, not that she's shy or anything, but you know, she's, she's, what's she like, you know, as a leader, you know, does she drag the team along or does she sort of inspire? What's her sort of way? We call her our fearless leader. Um, that's like our little thing, fearless Meg. And that is just how she leads. She's no mess about um, especially on the game, like, and that's what I kind of probably need. Someone like me who is mess about, um, probably just need that guidance to go. Nah, let's just get the job done. This is how we're going to do it. And I guess she's been someone who's kept our uh, values really accountable. She's someone that mentions them all the time, and so it's not something that we need to keep revisiting because we are living them. So that's probably how I would describe her best. Like off the field, she can have a laugh. She can. I call her serious Megan. She gets the shits, but <laughs> she she can have a laugh. She is good company but when she's in cricket mode she's so focused and so determined and so fearless like she's just someone who backs her skill sets she knows what she does and if she doesn't make 50 or 100 she's so disappointed in herself like she could make 30 of 10 win the game and still be disappointed like that's just kind of um you know who she is she she sets extremely high standards for herself and yeah as a leader fearless meg just describes her well Yep, she has those steely eyes. I uh, saw her at a toss once and something funny <laughs> happened with the toss, but she was not having a bar of the the levity at the moment. It was all business for her. Well, Megan, before I let you go, I want to ask you just a few questions about what's your sort of ambitions now, um, you know, as a player. Yeah, how do you see your sort of um, career panning out from here? Uh, well, I'm someone who's like constantly worried that my spot's going to get taken by a kid. So um, it's probably a good thing. It, it makes sure that I, you know, keep adding strings to my bow. But for me, I, I just want to stay at the top of my game as long as I can. I, I know that a bowler's career is shorter than a batter's. I know that, you know, with external factors of, you know, potential kids and now this could short my career even more. Like who knows um, what's going to happen. But I just, I love where we're at as a team, where we're going as a game, as a professional sport. And obviously when you keep having big carrots being dangled of a World Cup and then we have a Commonwealth Games, like what a dream to be able to, to win a medal in a Com Games. Like I, yeah, that's that for me is like my next carrot apart from the World Cup. Like as this seems to always be another carrot, another carrot, another carrot. So like that keeps driving me as a player to, to get better, to keep learning things, but also accepting that your career is going to be short. There's going to be people that come in. At the end of the day, it is a business and it is what it is. If you're replaced at 30, so be it. Um, and then it will be about giving more to my state team and what's next for that little part of my career. So I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty much a go with the flow person and whatever happens, happens. But I just want to stay at the top as long as I can. And the Commonwealth Games medal. I remember when oh. the... Um men's team lost the final to South Africa in 98. 
I do not. <laughs> oh, I do, obviously, because I'm a lot older. But Steve Waugh was like, yes, I'd love to win a gold medal. And then they lost the final and ended up with silver. Uh, you spoke about your state ambitions. You, I think you captained South Australia at, at times during the recent uh, WNCL. Did you enjoy captaincy? Yeah, so I've been captain of the state team. I think this is my third or fourth year now. But obviously with how much Aussie cricket we play now, I've not played as many games as I would like to, but my heart is with my state. And so like for me, the Ruth Pretty Cup is our ultimate goal. Like winning Big Bash would be great, but we want Ruth Pretty. Like that is our that is our goal. And and last year we had a really fresh team and but performed so well with what we'd kind of crafted. Going from winning one game the year before to missing out on the final by one over of bad cricket really um, was really disappointing. But I I enjoy captaincy. Um, I think it's a really good challenge. For me, I had my first taste of uh, big bash captaincy this year with Susie being injured, and and that was a whole nother world. Um, captaining fifty over cricket is is hard, but T Twenty cricket with it being so fast paced and it forever changing, you really have to have more set plans, and you can't go with the flow as much. So that was a big challenge for me, and and I was really nervous going into um, big bash this year, um, knowing I was going to be captain. But uh, WNCL captaincy, I absolutely love. You know, I've got a team that I know inside and out because I train with them all throughout the year. So I know what we're capable of. And obviously having people like Tali McGrath, we have pretty similar cricket brains. Um, so it's great reassurance for me and it's a good challenge. And I think it's really bettered my cricket for when I get into Aussie colors, um, just for having a bit more of a, a leadership view on things. I know how to stay more calm and, and just, just make sure I have more plans in place. So it's a great challenge, but it's one I certainly enjoy. Yeah, I take from that. You've got to stay calm. But I imagine then the the night before a big bash game, you're pouring over statistics and bowling plans and fields for this batter, fields for that batter. Is there just a lot of preparation? Oh, absolutely. And I think one thing is we have a great support staff for, for Big Bash. You know, we've got some amazing cricket brains around us. You know, we've got Charlotte Edwards, Drew Coleman and Luke Williams, three people who've played high-quality cricket for a long time. So, yeah, it's, it's all about matchups really. And so to be obviously planning for these bowlers to do these overs, but if this batter comes in, we're going to flip it. We're going to bring this person in for this over, but if it's from that end, we're going to change it to the small boundary. And it's just making sure that we have all our bases covered. And obviously then you have your individual meetings with your bowlers, making sure they know their plans, but really it's just knowing your matchups versus your field versus your situation. And yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into it. That's probably why I stressed way more with T20, especially when it's, you know, you're on TV. Um, it's a bit different mm. from WNCL. That's just live streams. So, um, yeah, there's more pressure on it, that's for sure. But I'm very happy to handle that back to Susie this year. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds stressful. I'd need like an, a book. I was captaining a T20 side to keep on top of all that. <laughs> a big Another question then that's sort of swimming around Australian cricket is that people are talking about whether Pat Cummins could be the next captain of Australia and uh, you, you haven't done it in red ball cricket, but, but do you think there's any reason why a fast bowler can't captain a, a, a national side? I see no reason at all. I think that has long been a myth and I think it's just the yeah, long road of pun that, you know, fast bowlers are dumb. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure where that came from. You actually require a lot of smarts to be a fast bowler. Like it isn't all just bowl fast, hit them, hurt them. Um, that's not how you play the game and everyone knows that. So I'm not sure where that ever came from, but I see no reason at all. For me as a as a bowler, obviously, I don't think it affects my captaincy at all. If anything, it actually makes me feel more accountable, which I guess maybe nerves can play a bigger part in things if you're captain maybe. I don't know. It's the only thing I can think of. But when I have my six balls at, in my over, I'm thinking about those six balls. And then the second that over ends, bang captaincy hat is on and you sort out, you know, the field, the next bowler, you have your conversations and whatnot, but you have to be able to turn it on and off anyways. So a bowler just needs to do that even more so just for six balls. So I see no reason as to why Pat couldn't be the next captain of Australia. He shows all the qualities um, that I think he should have in a captain and he's a really kind of likable person. So it'd be great for media and and great to have a chat to. And I imagine he's well liked amongst the team. So yeah, I, I think that's an old, old tale of fast bowlers are dumb and I'm not sure where that ever came from. Yeah. I mean, I guess the argument is, you know, if you're playing a test match and you're bowling a long spell at the end of it, you're spent. And then can you then lead the team? I think Pat Cummins could do it. He can do anything. Like, like, well, for one, he is, yeah, it's Pat Cummins. He can do anything, but like, 
<laughs> you're going to be spent anyways. You know, whether you are bowling overs or if you're standing in the field for it, you're still like doing something for an entire day. And if anything, like doing nothing makes you more tired. Like having a day off, I feel more wrecked than when I have a full day of training. So like standing at slips for an entire day sounds so much more tiring to me than bowling 15, 20 overs. Like at least you're a part of it. It keeps you active, keeps you moving. And I'm sure that would keep your brain going too. So yeah, for me, I don't think that's an excuse. I think fast bowlers make fine captains. All right, so that's one more in the Pat Cummins box. You can shoot. <laughs> do you have much to do with the men's team? Like, did, is there any sort of camaraderie between the two national sides? In all honesty, no. Like, our schedules never match up. Um, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, you already kind of look at their schedule and they're away for nine months of the year. And most of the time, it's not where we're going. So, um, there's not a whole lot of crossover. We obviously do our odd videos of, you know, good luck. And if we do happen to be um, <clears throat> in the same city or whatnot, we'll do some sort of catch up. But honestly, there's not a whole lot of it. We probably have more of it amongst the big bash when it used to be the crossover times or state stuff or training camps. That That's more so when you get your, your crossover a bit. But other than that, we tour in completely different sides of the world. They're off playing red bull cricket in india while we're you know got a t20 world cup in new zealand or, or things like that so there's not a whole lot of opportunity to do that but with the you know the australian boys that are in the south australian camp um obviously them a little bit so you get your crossover there and yeah obviously <laughs> that's that's as much as it can get really yeah right that's no good for elisa healy and mitch stark's marriage <laughs> they're always on different sides of the world they do so well like i i think too like they're both very good at looking ahead in that schedule and going hang on I've got a seven day gap here I can get to where you are for five of those days and so they they have to they have to make the most of every little bit of time off that they get but somehow they make it work and it's it's actually really cute to see like I love having Mitch on on tour with us and there's another fast bowler to pick a brain about to be honest who plays a longer format that I don't get to play so um it's not a whole lot of cricket chat but when it is it's it's still pretty cool can imagine you and Starkey shooting. How, well, he bowls a pretty good in swinger as well. So, well, oh, technically, to, it's out. Used to be able. Yet, oh, yeah. so. <laughs> that's true. Actually, left arm. <laughs> well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on Cricket Unfiltered and discussing your career. It's been fascinating. Uh, I think you are such an inspiration, and not just the way you play, but you know the way you are off the field. The fact that you. You know, when the same-sex marriage debate was so public, you were willing to, um, you know, be front and centre in that debate. I just think it's so inspirational. So so many athletes are unwilling to speak about those things, but you seem, you know, very comfortable with speaking your feelings. Uh, I just think it's so important to do that. Like, I, I appreciate your kind words. I do. It's just I, I think that should be something we all strive to do. I don't know. My, my dad's an extremely stubborn person and just kind of, you know, instilled in me when I was a kid, just be who you are and be proud of it. So um, I don't think he imagined me as a gay cricketer doing that, but um, Mm -hmm. like just I've continued that, you know, there was probably a time I lost myself when I was a teenager and just wanted to fit the mold and and make things easy at high school. But I don't know from there on in, I was like, that's, that's not me. That's not who I want to be. So I actually just appreciate the opportunities to be able to be myself. Like that's also what's changed is the conversations we've had and being able to be so open without there being any backlash or any wrong opinions, I guess, but you can't really have a wrong feeling when that's how you felt in, in a way. Mm. So for me, I've just, I like the fact that now I get to speak about those things. Like CA gave me the opportunity to, to do an article about same sex marriage, to put my voices out there and, yeah, that, that is also what's changing is not only am I um, willing to speak out, there's outlets willing to hear me. So um, that's what's changing as well, which is great. You know, even now there's no openly male gay athletes in Australian sport, um, especially team sport. There is still that stigma and there is still a way to go. Oh, for sure. And honestly, it's harder for men. Like I'll, I will just be flat out with men I think feel harder to come out and I who knows there might be many a gay cricketer or or AFL footballer or rugby player within their own team they've told their close friends but aren't willing to come out in the media and I don't know being a gay man seems to be a lot harder than being a gay female so there's there's so far to go and there just needs to be one person that is brave enough to come out and go yep I'm going to cop a bit of backlash and you do you get the odd comment that is pretty horrible but you just block that person and you move on so like someone needs to just go you know what things need to change and it's just going to take that one person that's saying 
hopefully a sea of people will follow because statistically there has to be gay men in cricket or in any sport. Um, mm. So I, I don't know. I think there's never been a better platform to, to have them come out and say that. It's for some reason it's just so much harder. Gay men have trouble accepting gay men and that's just I think a stereotype of how you should feel about gay men and that's changing for sure but there's still a long way to go and I think, again, it's just going to take one person to come out and go, I'm willing to cop a bit of shit, a um, bit of backlash, and it's going to help a hundred other people after me. Mm, yeah. And I, look, I think the women's cricket team and the women's cricket players are sort of paving the way for male athletes. It's going to take time, but I just think the the campaigning you've done, and you know, I read an article recently where I think Elisa Villani is moving uh, states to be with her partner Nicola Carey down in Tasmania, and I just think being open and honest about those things Im- implicitly inspires other people. Yeah, and I don't know for me, like that is a, a beautiful example of what you would do for your partner, right? So there would be somewhere along the lines, there's some male player who would have done that who would have moved for their partner but secretly and imagine Mm. if you could just you don't have to come out and go I'm a gay man or anything but just if you went oh me and so and so together and I'm moving states so I can be with him or like that should just be a normal conversation and hopefully one day we get there absolutely well Megan let's end on that positive note um thank you so much for coming on men as masterclass it's been an absolute pleasure to talking talking to you congratulations on your wife Jess being pregnant um hopefully you're next Oh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Megan Shute. Thank you so much for subscribing to Cricket Unfiltered's Patreon page. We really appreciate it. Coming up next month, we have Robert Crash Craddock as my special guest. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.